Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is uh, Paul Axton. I'm here today with Matt, and we are in the week of the dropping of the atomic bomb 75 years ago it was actually August 6th and then on August 9th the dropping of the bomb on Nagasaki it's just very strange how we extrapolate me and my wife walking down a, a bad neighborhood for you know on our way home from the basketball game and someone jumping her and me having to protect her into dropping an atomic bomb on Japan it seems to me like there's a little bit of there would be like a little bit of a difference there, you know. That's exactly what's happening in our interpretation of the New Testament. And so people will take a passage like Jesus cleansing of the temple. You can read that in a violent way, and that's the way that it gets read in a post Augustinian world. That well, what Jesus did in the temple in this warmongering on ideas you see, he probably had a, a whip, and maybe it was a, a cat of nine tail. Maybe it had glass and metal in it. And you can even see paintings. You know, Rembrandt does paintings, and you have the angry Jesus uh, hovering over some poor old soul. You can't tell quite if it's a little old lady or a little old man. You know, he's whipping them over the head with the, the whip and ripping open their skin. And we know that if Jesus was a violent, you know, here is the portrayal of a real anger of God, that here is the justification for the use of weapons in war. Here is the justification for machine guns. Here is the justification for mutually assured destruction and nuclear weapons. Jesus said, do you have a sword? And of course, he calls us all to the sword. And it's like the the Colorado Air Force Academy Chapel, that the chapel is one that embraces the violence and war that is inherent to the gospel. And so there is this kind of perverse interpretation that people will go to great lengths. And of course, I, I hope that the, the, just the ridiculousness of Jesus taking what was probably obviously in the temple, but weapons there was no such thing as they weren't allowed in the temple. And whatever that was, it was something that he fashioned. You know, the animals, of course, are the object that he's driving the animal. There's never any indication that he hurt people or that he did violence to people. And yet we're so bent upon the necessity of violence. And so what we would do is take the gospel in that manner and give a will create a whole atonement theory in which it's about the anger and violence of God being unleashed in Jesus rather than for what it is it's the anger and violence of human beings unleashed on God the the choice really when we read the gospel rightly is to understand that it's an embrace of the violent war god the god of violence the god of redemptive violence or it's an embrace of the Prince of Peace. But you can't do both things. And of course, much of the Christianity that we get is then one that posits this anger and violence as in a kind of an originary, you know, what, what you're getting, I think, in, in certain forms of Christianity 
is on the order of an originary violence, an originary evil, that it's actually being projected onto God, that God is the one who is our problem. And really it's God that, you know, it's his anger that we need to, in some way, well, boy, I wish you could get over it. And so he directs it all at Christ, except for the leftover parts, which is going to consume the vast majority of humanity. Yeah, I, you know, is that maybe it's more reprehensible because you take the gospel of peace and turn it into the gospel of war and necessary violence. But understand that's just, that's, that's what humans do. That is the human heart. The blackness of the human heart is made most evident in what it would do to Christ. That's why he's on a cross. And people continue to need to have him on that cross for the same reason that he was originally put there. Yeah, and when I was talking about being in your class and going through the painful experience of, and we've talked about this in in the last podcast on shame, but there really, it does involve uh, the painful process of just admitting maybe that you were just wrong. You know, at least for me, like that was a hard thing to go, wait a second, is he saying that I can't use violence anymore? You know, that that's part of what it means to be a Christian, you know, because that's just, you know, at Bible college, that really is the the sort of uh, the easy retort to your position is just like, well, yeah, but I'm always going to fight for my wife and my family and, and da, 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 right? And you really get derailed really quickly whenever you start making that the only sort of point of the, of the conversation. But that's just what happens nonetheless. But I do think that it was a painful realization, first of all, to just go, I think that, you know, you either, what you were doing in your class is just going through and just saying, okay, Jesus starts in Matthew chapter five. He just lays it right out right there in the beginning of the New Testament and his first, you know, sermon in the New Testament, other than it's like he, he, he you know, right away in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount says, well, you got to love your enemies. You can't resist the evil man with force. You know, you got to turn the other cheek. It's all these other, it's all these hard things. Where in your classes, you were saying, by the way, guys, Jesus here really means what he's teaching. It's not just hyperbole. It's not just to show you how sinful you are and that you need a savior and that someone can do it for you. They'll turn the cheek for you. It's like, no, that he's actually establishing an ethic, you know, that you have to follow here of nonviolence. And I'm on a podcast now talking to you however many years later, you know, at least 12 years later about peace. But at the time, I remember thinking like, this is so contrary to everything that I've received as a Christian. And as you were just talking there before, I was thinking about how I've gotten in trouble over the last 15 years in the church with Christian friends of mine. And I'll be honest, I would say most of it has to do with the rejection of violence. And I can just easily tell you how. When I was at the school out there in Missouri in 2007 or 2008, I had friends that were good friends of mine that I loved, you know, down south. And they were very much sort of advocates of guns and which, by the way, I I don't care about if people have guns and they want to do I love I love to shoot guns and do target shooting and all that. I think it's so I think it's great fun to take a 22 out and try to, you know, I, I have fun with that. I don't think that I should, you know, shoot people with with, you know. I would say that, man, if, if things get bad and you need to hunt, you know, probably okay to, to you know, shoot something as long as you're going to eat it. Although I'm, I'm working through that too. But, I, but you know, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not like a nut when it comes to all this stuff. But I, I was kind of getting to the point where, and especially as someone who came from the streets, which I think is an important thing, at least in my story, because 
you know, whenever you're on the streets, I feel like it's like, well, you just know that like guns are associated with, for the most part, with like with violence, with power, with murder, with death, you know what I mean? With pain, suffering. And so at least for me, I could, I could at least see that like, well, maybe there's something to the, what Paul, you know, this version of the gospel that he's, that he's teaching us, that there's something to this peace thing. But of course, whenever I started sharing that with my friends, you know, my Christian friends, they got mad. I wasn't saying I want to take away, I think we should take away your pistol or, you know, your 22, your peacemaker or whatever. I was just saying that like, man, maybe as Christians, we shouldn't hurt other people because it felt like to me, like there was a lot of Christians who were kind of just like waiting for someone to break into their house so they could blow them away, you know, kind of thing. And it's just like, man, I don't think that that's, that's not Christianity, you know? And so when I started expressing that and saying, well, I don't know if we should have AR-15s, you know, and this, this is especially, this was, you know, the, the time whenever people were, you know, all these mass shootings, which are still going on, by the way, but, it, you know, nothing has changed about that. But as a Christian, I started really kind of speaking up more and more about, you know, hey, I'm not saying let's take everybody's guns. But what I am saying is, is that violence is bad. And guns seem to be contributing to part of the problem. And I don't have a lot of answers. I'm just saying that maybe Christians shouldn't be involved in promotion of, you know, violence. That's all. But people started to get very angry. And then from there, once you start talking about like atonement theory, right? Like these are deeply held things that people have that are Christians. And, and, if you, and if you start to speak to the heart of it and say, well, you know, no, actually, I don't think that God the Father was torturing God the Son to death on the cross. I don't think that that's what the cross is, is some sort of violent exchange between the Father and the Son. I don't think that that's who the God that's in, you know, revealed in Christ is. You know, he's a peacemaker. Um, but that started to get me in a lot of trouble with Christians who were like, no, wait a second, you know, God is violent. And they were very adamant about that. And I could just keep going, you know, that then whenever you start talking about, you know, a lot of Christians sort of have this precious doctrine of eternal conscious torment, where God is going to not just, you know, destroy the wicked, um, but that he is going to eternally be violent to them. That he actually, in some cases, if you're real far, if you're way out there, that God created a whole bunch of people to be eternally violent to them for his glory. And so once you start saying that, well, maybe God isn't like that either. It's just been my experience that people start to get really angry. Like we've always made the joke, you know, in our little group is that when you start talking about peace, people start getting violent You know, they start getting mad. They don't like to hear that America dropped two atomic bombs and it wasn't the beautiful and the good and the true that makes people really angry and so i do think that you're right i guess i'm just discouraged on the one hand because i know that you're right and i believe that you're right that, that christianity is a non-violent at the heart of it it's a non-violent religion that teaches a non-violent trinitarian theology that existed before the creation of the world that teaches a you know a, a peacemaking non-violent uh, atonement theory uh, actually a, a, an overthrow of the whole violent economy that we inhabit the whole sacrificial economy that you've been saying that christianity militates against is the very idea that most christians have about what the atonement is that it's just a violent sort of exchange 
And so it's really difficult because even when, in my experience, when I've tried to gently point some of these things out to people who are friends or people that I love, family, whatever, it's like, well, people get really angry, you know, about divesting God of his, actually, I had a professor at the little school out there in Missouri and a guy, a good friend of mine gave a, gave a very good talk. And the, the, the one professor there, he, he just became incensed about how, you know, it's God's right to do violence. It's his prerogative that it's, how dare you, you know, basically try to, uh, again, even explain theology in a way where God isn't kind of like the, the, the alpha and omega of, of violence, you know, the very underpinning force behind or underlying all of, you know, the violence of the cosmos or whatever. And of course, these are the people that oftentimes, again, in, in, in my experience, not only treat people, you know, badly. Now, they're pro-life oftentimes, you know, when it comes to children. Now, they're not pro-life usually when it comes to the death penalty. But what I'm getting at is that, and again, I, this is my limited experience, and I don't know, you know, tons and tons of people, but I think I know enough people, and I've read enough theology and stuff to at least make the educated guess to say that a lot of Christians subscribe not only to some of these sort of violent doctrines, but then they would be in favor of something like nuclear war if it all came down to it. Do, you, do I have it right there, or did I say too much for you to be able to agree with it? Yeah, I, I think what you're describing is the theological version of the necessity of violence or of redemptive violence. In other words, that the whole thing, you can switch it all around. It can, you know, it clearly functions in paganism. I think you got to get that straight. That in paganism, there's an originary evil, uh, an originary violence, in which the gods themselves are death-dealing toward one another. But the hell or a notion of infernalism, eternal torturous existence, is the equivalent of that. In other words, it bears that same eternal weight that you get in paganism, that it assigns this as a kind of, this is going to be the necessity upon which everything else is drawn, that clearly the eternality of God's anger and of eternal torturous existence, a kind of violence, that is the reigning reality that is the focus of most people's Christian theology. And so it's not just that their atonement theory fits in that, into that penal substitution, divine satisfaction. I think it's there in both forms of Roman Catholicism. It's there in, certainly in, in for the predominant forms of Protestantism. But it then, what you're really doing simultaneously, you're clearing the boards of what Christianity is, you know, as you're blanking it out and saying, well, this is what it's about. It's about the anger of God. And so you're unleashing all of those, lo that logic, that undergirding logic or that deep grammar that's already there in all of us, that we all are already attuned just by the dent of being part of enculturated into, into societies and cultures, that we've all learned the way of violence is the true and only way. That gets reinforced in the religion so that penal substitution, the anger of God, you know, in, infernalism, and you can just, just go right on through that there may be remnants of the peace that is taught on the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, but those are easy 
to kind of get over. Yeah, well, you turn the other cheek, as Augustine said. But, of course, you don't turn the cheek of your neighbor. And so when the assault is on your neighbor, then you have to come to their defense. And out of that, then you get just war theory. All of it arises in a kind of Constantinian Christianity so that we move from the cross being God taking the violence and undoing it, overcoming death, that Constantine is told will fight under this symbol. And so the cross becomes the primary emblem of violence and war and just war. And, you know, we probably shouldn't throw around the notion of just war because this is sort of Stanley Howard's point. If somebody would actually follow the mandate of just war, there wouldn't be any wars. So that may be put out there, but it, it's actually, you know, obviously killing civilian populations, as we're describing in World War II. That is anathema in just war theory. So no, we're not really discussing just war. Nobody's going to make the argument that what happened in World War II follows the, the outlines of just war. And so what you've got, you've described the deep grammar of a kind of violent necessity that is built into Christianity. So that Christianity then just uh, becomes the means of reinforcing what I think is the human problem, the human predicament. You know, what we're really saved from is our is our sin. What is our sin? Well, just look at Genesis. That it is that falling apart. You know, it is the Cain kills Abel. It's the rise of Lamech. It's the rise of the psychopathic killers of the generation of Noah. Violence is equated with the fall of man. It's certainly not redemptive. It, in fact, is what we're redeemed from. And so, yeah, I just think we have to, uh, in in some way, recognize that the Christianity, first of all, that we've been fed and indoctrinated into, is very often uh, already then one that has been bent. Especially, you know, I think in Japan, for example, if you become a Christian, it's not going to be a shocker that you arrive at the notion of peace as primary because of that experience. But because of our history and experience, it's no shocker that we're going to in some way justify the most violent nation, I think, in the history of the world. I don't think there's ever been a place as violent as the United States in terms of just, you know, the numbers of killings of citizens of one another, the killings by police, you know, just look at, look at the statistics of the number of people that are killed by the police in the, in the United States. In Japan, I, is there one a year? Or then look at the prison population as a form of violence or the violence that has been carried out in, in terms of overthrow of governments, other governments. In other words, th- this is uh, the very heart of the beast that we live in. Probably we can't see these two things unless we see them simultaneously. If we imagine that we live in a Christian country, then the Christianity that we're going to absorb is that which is in some way supporting that idea. But once we're dispossessed of this notion that the, the, what 
this country does is God's will, and what other countries do is over and against God's will. Until we're dispossessed of that, until we can name the evil, I don't know that we can be redeemed or or even begin to see. I, you know, I don't know which comes first here. Does the an authentic gospel begin to allow us to see? I think the two things in some way, though, do come together so that the exposure of the atrocities like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the atrocities that were committed in World War II, the atrocities that were committed in subsequent wars and wars before on the part of the United States, I think that that we're going to be blinded by that, blinded to that. And part of the role of our kind of false Christianity is going to, to, to enable that blinding. I was reading about Paul Warfield Tibbetts, who was the pilot of the Enola Gay bomber. And, uh, you know, the he named, apparently he named the, the plane after his mother. Uh, I didn't know that his mother, that Enola Gay was his mother, but he was the one who dropped the little boy on Hiroshima. Uh, and he was quoted in an interview in 2005 saying that even after all the, you know, the horror and the suffering left by the bomb that he dropped, he said the same thing like you said Truman said. He says that he sleeps clearly every night. And he went on to say that I knew when I got the assignment it was going to be an emotional thing. We had feelings, but we had to put them in the background. We knew it was going to kill people right and left. But my one driving interest was to do the best job I could so that we could end the killing as quickly as possible. So he slept, you know, he slept okay. Harry Truman slept okay. Uh, whenever you were telling the story, uh, I saw the video too of, of Noam Chomsky where I think he was 16 years old or so. And, uh, you know, he was at school and he got the news of the atomic bombs. I think they they dropped them. I don't know if it was 8.15 our time or their time. But, you know, he said he experienced it as a sort of a double shock. And he said on the one hand, it was the news of the actual bombs that had been dropped and the devastation. Chomsky, of course, is a, even that. I mean, he's a genius. And so he probably had a little bit better ability to sort of understand the scope of this thing. And he said, you know, so the one shock was uh, the actual news of the bombing, and the other was the lack of reaction to it. You know, the, the, the people weren't horrified. Uh, and he said it was so it was so shocking for him. It's like he got up from the from the breakfast table or wherever he was, uh, you know, and he went out into the woods and he just sat there for for a few hours uh, and just thought about everything. And he, as you told the story earlier, he really was bothered by the fact that people weren't didn't seem to be all that upset. Uh, now. Maybe it's because of the propaganda. Maybe it's because of these different... They didn't see the pictures of the people's skin dripping off and things like that. But apparently Chomsky knew enough to where he could picture it or, or whatever. I guess I'm wondering, you know, you've done so much with theology and psychology that what is it about human nature, you know, that either individually with soldiers like Tibbet, you know, collectively, you know, with Chomsky's classmates, uh, were a person or a group or a nation can end the lives of 200,000 or more people in a flash. Untold more people in the coming weeks with, you know, children, like you said, radiation sickness and starvation, uh, that they can sleep every night. I mean, how could Truman sleep after seeing the pictures, that, you know, of the devastation? Can you help me to understand how that's not... I mean, to me, like, on one hand, it almost seems like we got to be like a psychopath. But I, surely I must be misunderstanding. We can kind of read this, you know, of course, nobody's taken responsibility for anything, in a sense, that that that's sort of the attitude, well, the, these events require this or this situation. 
the circumstance. And of course, we're all, we've all been there. We all understand, well, when the group thinks this way, or this is the accepted understanding, and this is what we've been taught. I don't know, you know, who, it may take a genius like a Noam Chomsky to, to be able to resist the herd, um, because we're all, that's the thing that we're inundated with. That's the thing that we're enculturated by. To be able to see the monster, maybe we have to begin with ourselves and recognize that it's sort of like the, the frog in the kettle, you know, that, that you kind of slowly heat up this water and it reaches boiling temperature before the, the frog can do anything about it. I think that that's what takes place, that people are of such a, a nature that that they really can't. I mean, that's sort of what we're picturing is this thing just seems inevitable. It just seems, well, this is the way history is going or this, the necessity of doing these particular things are, are sort of irresistible. And of course, what the gospel is portraying is standing up to that and uh, giving us an alternative narrative, giving us an alternative insight. I think that it has to begin with nonviolence. I'm not sure that we can always work out in the immediacy of a situation why violence is not the answer, because I think that's where we all naturally turn. But I think we, once we begin to train our minds and our understanding in such a way to recognize, well, violence is never an answer for anything, that in fact it's kind of, a, of the, the answer that's foisted upon us. How do we do that? Um, I always think of Hitler's architect. Uh, you know, Spear always describes that his problem was he was just shaped by his own inadequate identity, his own inadequate ambition. He just wanted to be a good architect. And what that involved him in was building munitions for Hitler. I think that there is a sense that, oh, I just want to be a a good son, a good citizen. Yeah, but that's probably not enough. And I think that's what Christ is calling us out of, is that in some way we need a kind of enlargement to be able to name the evils by which we're surrounded. You know, we would think that we would be attuned. So I think that that's part one of this answer, is that, first of all, we're, of course, we're entering into an industrial age, a technological age, in which, you know, even the people on the plane that dropped the bomb. They don't see the devastation in any kind of immediate way. Warfare has become by means of machines. But even today, I think people exposed to, to high levels of violence and war, the trauma that that produces, we can see that in people with PTSD, that, that is, it is such an unnatural thing. So much so that we should probably worry for those who don't have PTSD. In other words, if you're able to sleep well after committing those sorts of atrocities, you may have such a misshapen identity and personality that there is something that is irredeemable already about you. <laughs> Do I keep going dark no, on you? Going, I mean, it's a dark, it's a dark topic. Um, but as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, though, about I, – because I can't remember if you've actually done this on the podcast. I know you've written about it, but if you if, – could you talk a little bit about uh, MAD, you know, mutually assured destruction, this, the doctrine of MAD, and how does it work? How is it, how's its, you know, logic function? And because, you know, 
Noam Chomsky, we keep bringing him up. I don't think we have plans on talking about him. But, you know, again, he's the most cited academic in the history of modern scholarship. But he thinks that nuclear war poses the absolute greatest threat to the continued existence of the human species. And so, I, you know, if you could talk to us about MAD, and then I'm, I guess my follow-up question would be, you know, how is it possible for the human race to avoid uh, nuclear destruction? The New Yorker in uh, the anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing, they've run, they've picked up some stories and rerun them. One is the story of Hershey, you know, who kind of, he re- reinvented journalism in a sense, going over and describing then the devastation on of Hiroshima. One of the, the stories, though, that's kind of a human interest piece that's in a sense, it's it's frightening, and that is there's the the story of this truck driver who has a, a great interest in the atomic bomb and how it was built. He does not have a college education. He any expertise he has, he's developed it on his own. He becomes even in the eyes of several of the physicists that worked on the atomic project, people that were in El Magardo that he becomes a kind of unrivaled expert on the inner workings of the atomic bomb simply through seeing the casings, through seeing the mechanics. And so he's written a book that nobody will buy. In fact, when some, if you buy it on Amazon, he has to run to Kinko to print off another copy because it's a book that's just filled with equations. The point of that story is that this is this is frightening in that a really intelligent truck driver can apparently build an atomic bomb. You know, this was sort of the thing that people found confounding about Truman when the head of the uh, atomic project went to Truman. And Truman says, well, when do you think the Soviets will be able to get the bomb? And he said, well, I, I don't know. And Truman said, I'll tell you the answer. They'll never get it. And of course, it was such a naive understanding because it, uh, someone who doesn't have the scientific background, they may think, oh, this is just a kind of insurmountable problem to put together a nuclear weapon. No, actually, it's not. It, it's something that the technology is there. It's available. Uh, a really smart truck driver could build one of these things, given the material. How do you know, once you put it in those terms, that that the, the science the complication of this thing is not going to save us. The uh, sensibility, the common sense, you know, this is Daniel Ellsberg's point. Ellsberg is one of those who was involved in putting together the plans for the counter-strikes and, you know, the policies of first strike. And, of course, Daniel Ellsberg became so disenchanted, he just describes the horror of, you know, what was being put together that, he, he published the Pentagon, you know, he, he sneaks the Pentagon papers out and exposes the duplicity going on uh, with the Vietnam War. But what he what was really important and which he's he also snuck those papers out were the mutually assured destruction of which he was well aware of how it started and how it was planned. You know, he flew all over the world seeing how this would be carried out in the various places that had nuclear weapons. And of course, what he came to discover is that the system was so subject to human error, and he describes, you know, some hundred errors that that we've just been saved from the brink of total mutual warfare 
mutually assured destruction because some first of all so that there you human error that there's a mistake and then somebody says wait a minute we probably shouldn't do this uh but eventually that's not going to work that eventually it would seem like someone would go through with it and so the people who keep you know the the clock that is predicting that you know kind of the doomsday clock that is actually a lot of information is fed into that that we're now closer to to midnight the, the hour of doomsday than we've ever been in history it used to be minutes away but now they've eliminated minutes we're dealing in seconds all i know to do is just to keep talking about commitment to peace in spite of the seeming necessity of mutually assured destruction the logic of mutually assured destruction if you can't see that it's madness if you can't see that global you know it may be we really don't know it could be wiping out all life on the planet if you can't see that it's going to be very hard to draw back from the brink so all i know to do is just talk about that there is an alternative world there's an alternative means there's an alternative method mutually assured destruction redemptive violence is not the way to salvation yeah i think so i think that the only hope really for mankind to survive you know i was a kennedy who said that mankind has to put an end to war or war will put an end to mankind i don't remember if that was kennedy or not but and who knows what what kennedy really thought about that but i i think that he's right it might seem grandiose but i think that what we really are advocating you and i is uh, for a doctrine of peace to be embraced. The thing that gets kind of like discouraging or overwhelming about it is, is that like, well, I don't, I don't see the United States of America adopting, you know, a doctrine of nonviolence in the next few months. Like, I just don't think that's going to happen. But I would hope that maybe in the church of, you know, of Jesus Christ, that we could begin to talk about peace as a real alternative, as as just like a strategic alternative to mutual annihilation. You know, when you talk about Daniel Ellsberg and Noam Chomsky and these other people, you know, and some people could say whatever, they don't know what they're talking about, but I don't know, some of the smartest guys in the world seem to think that nuclear warfare is the greatest threat, that and global warming, to mankind. And so it's like, well, even if you don't buy into global warming, which I think it's crazy not to. Well, we know that we have nukes. We've got we've got stockpiles of them, and it seems like it could go real bad real quickly. And so you would think that the sane alternative would be for the followers of Christ to preach peace in a world that's gone mad with violence. Uh, but it's been my experience that many Christians disagree. <laughs> As you know, that's been my experience. <laughs> I want to try to get us to end on a. On a positive note, but I, you know, I, I, I'm tempted to say, like, you know, because again, I don't even know if the church is even having this discussion. I really don't. I think that we're probably talking about, you know, putting more butts in seats and uh, how to do the, you know, the music and what color the, you know, the the carpet should be and stuff like that. I, I doubt. I don't know how much we're talking about violence and you know, peacemaking and things like that. And so the temptation, you're right, we can't just throw up our hands in despair. But sometimes I guess I'm tempted to think, have we gone too far? You know, are we too far gone? The world and the church, I mean, you know, that are, are we destined for annihilation or is there still hope for survival? I, I do think that if we don't, this was part of Dr. King's plan. I think he was just saying in a very practical way, it's like, well, we have to learn how to live peaceable 
with one another, or we're going to, you know, be peaceable as brothers or die as fools. It does seem like the intelligent thing to do is to make the doctrine of peace the doctrine of like the for human the species survival. But I just don't see it happening. I, I guess maybe the thing that we can do in the church is to continue in our little small circle wherever we find, may find ourselves in the world to just remind people that peace is the way of God and of his kingdom and not violence. Well, let, let me say three things. One is that the same impetus, you know, why would we have this conversation? Well, first of all, the peace that we're describing is also a kind of interpersonal peace that we found among ourselves, that here we found access to other people. In other words, the same thing that would destroy the world would also, in a very local and personal sense, destroy human relationships. It's the same impetus. That is, the the violence that we would do to each other is also uh, the same logic that we would apply globally. And so as we preach peace, it is it has that dual aspect that it is a personal peace that together we we begin to experience this positive peace. And that then is something that is worthy of inviting all people into. And it does amount to an alternative method. It is an alternative way. It is the armor of God that displaces the armor and armory of this world. The other thing is, of course, that we do in some way imagine that we're going to entrust ourselves to God and, and the security of God, that we are in God's hands in the end. I don't think that that turns us to a kind of impassive do-nothingness, but that, that there's a stronger commitment to the gospel. On any of these issues, global warming, mutually assured destruction, I think you can take Uh, one of two attitudes that will kind of be defeated. One is, okay, we need to get in there and we need to accomplish this ourselves. And then when you jump into the task, if you imagine that this is something that through our own effort, then the tendency will to be just to throw up our hands and say, wait a minute, this is all useless. That is to swing from a kind of over-optimistic to a complete pessimistic. So I think that have the, the right the capacity to continue on, or in Paul's language, to stand firm. We do have to understand that ultimately there is a good end that we're promised, and we are participants toward that end, but we may not be able to make that link. And so I think to be able to go on in this peaceableness, we can neither give in to the futility or imagine that it simply depends upon us. Good talk, man. God knows I hope that we don't have to talk about World War Three. <laughs> Great conversation. If there is a World War Three, I doubt that we'll be here to talk about it. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, sorry if it's sorry if it's dark, but I guess man, just preparing for all this and, and kind of just reading through it, I mean, this stuff gets dark, you know, and, and it does. It's like I think these are conversations that we need to have, that we should have, that we need to face it. We need to face the the facts and the truth and the reality of the, I mean, that real people, it's like, oh, you can look at that number and say, oh, 200,000 and then go, you know, go to McDonald's or whatever. But if you, if you look it up on YouTube or whatever and you see the pictures and you let it kind of sink in that – these are families with um, moms and dads and brothers and sisters and you know nephews and grandchildren and houses that were just utterly destroyed with everything that the family ever cared about in it. You know, it's like and these things are happening 
all over and have been happening all throughout human history. And I guess that what we're trying to say in our own little way is that only Jesus can save us. In every sense. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've got counter voices. I think we've got counter information. I think we can get beyond the propaganda. I think that there is a positive uh, piece in the gospel that's available to us, that we've got to put that into place. Otherwise, we, we wouldn't be doing this. We wouldn't be having this conversation. I think that we all need to, you know, this was the, the song of the civil rights movement, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. That's all I got is this little light. I'm going to shine it as much as I can in the darkness uh, and hope that it leads somebody uh, to the light. That's right. Well, you, you made me smile. You made me smile at the end there. So thank you for the <laughs> encouragement. So always good talking with you. <laughs> all right, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.